0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The Epistle to the Hebrews is widely associated with its theology of Christ the High Priest. The opening four chapters of Hebrews, however, arguably contain greater emphasis on the topic of creation. Angela Costley explores the importance of creation in the epistle to the Hebrews, uncovering a close link between creation and salvation, a depiction of Christ as the creator who descends to take on human flesh, God who becomes human, in order to lead humanity heavenward. Tune in as we speak with Angela Costley about her recent book, Creation and Christ. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Angela Costley earned her MST in Jewish Studies from the University of Oxford and a PhD from St. Patrick's College, the Pontifical University, Maynooth. Angela, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Angela, tell us about yourself and then what led you to study the Epistle to the Hebrews?
2: Sure. So, um, my academic career sort of started as an undergrad at Durham University in England. Uh, you probably hear from the accent where I'm from. Uh, <laughs> I then went and did my Masters in Jewish Studies at Oxford, and following that, I did my PhD at a Pontifical University, which is an island called um, St. Patrick's College, Maynooth. And uh, I now work in a seminary. I teach scripture. I actually teach Old Testament. I'm not sure how that's happened, but there we go. Um, but uh, I absolutely love um, scripture generally, and uh, I, this will be my life's work. So I became interested in Hebrews while I was at Manoos. And what happens uh, on the Irish PhD is that you have to do as soon as what we call modules. Now, a module would be like a a short course. And they had one on Hebrews. And we were doing all this stuff on kind of the priesthood of, of Christ and all the usual stuff you get with Hebrews. But when I was doing it, I kind of looked at the first few chapters and I thought, well, hang on a minute we don't actually open with a reference to the priesthood we open with a reference to creation Um, so the god has spoken of old through the prophets but now he's spoken through his son through whom specifically he created the world as i read on there was another one in uh, sort of 110 to 12. Uh so uh there's another reference to god's uh, creative activity how he founded the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of his hands um, uh, but these will perish whereas the sun will remain forever and it didn't stop there either. As I read on <laughs> in chapter sort 2, 5 to 9, we had a reference to the creation of humanity as well. Uh, we read that it was not to angels that God subjected the world, um, uh, followed by a reference to Psalm 8 with the statement, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Um, this, of course, um, followed by the statement that humanity had been uh, made a little bit less than the angels and been crowned with glory and honor in the original psalm. But the author of Hebrews then goes on to say, well, we don't actually see that in our reality. Um, But instead, we see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, and he's now crowned with glory and honor. And the text goes on to describe um, how by becoming human and suffering death, he's become the pioneer of humanity's salvation and leads them heavenward. Uh, Then in verse 10, we had uh, another reference directly to creation uh, in the comment that uh, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, So again, uh, we have a kind of incarnational reference and this descent motif, which I'll get into a little bit as we carry on. Um, Then in 3, 1 to 6, there was another comparison, um, this time of Moses to Jesus. And it says that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And in verse four, we have this comment that the builder of all things is God. And so a more general reference to the creation of the universe again. Then again, shortly after, we had uh, four, three to four, and there's a reference to God's rest on the seventh day. And then in verses nine to ten, we have this promise of the Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, now this is of course a uh, harkening back to the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and the references then seem to kind of peter out a little bit but it struck me that to have so many references so tightly clustered we should really be paying some attention to that um, there, there was no real reason I could see um, not to to link them up um, I, I think that The reason perhaps that it hadn't been done so far is that there was very little shared vocabulary. So these were very disparate references to creation. I thought, well, maybe that's why they haven't been connected. There's a definite theme here that's being referenced. And at the very beginning of the epistle, that's surely setting the scene for what's going to come a bit later on. There has to be some kind of connection um, between creation and Hebrews wider theology. And what I found during the research was that whenever we get a reference to creation, there's generally a reference to Hebrew soteriology, and thus Christ's salvific activity is closely linked to his role in creation, uh, kind of more generally speaking. And that's what I found held the passages together, despite the fact that they weren't linked maybe in in terms of recovery and the usual things we would look for as scholars.
1: Hebrews is a fascinating book which has generated a lot of scholarship, but the creation motif in Hebrews has hardly been explored. Why do you think this topic has been neglected and what led you to pursue it?
2: I think once scholars get hold of a certain theme in a book or a letter, um, it then tends to take over and you'll find one scholar building on another scholar building on another scholar. And the imagination kind of gets a bit stifled sometimes. And I think The method I prefer for analyzing texts is discourse analysis. And it gives a bit of a different window on things because you look at something called linearization, which is how a text progresses and moves from one point onto another point. And when I started to do that, I started to see this pattern whereby we moved actually from quite a focus on creation and the relationship between soteriology and creation in Hebrews in the first few chapters, that then leads into the deeper soteriology we find later, like the entering behind the veil or that kind of thing. And so I think the reason scholars have neglected it is because so much attention had been drawn to the priesthood historically uh, in Hebrews. Um, And, of course, you have a lot of kind of debates versus the actual theology of that and being one mediator. And, of course, Catholics would have a slightly different view. And so I think there's been a lot of kind of back and forth between different scholars and different opinions on that. And I just think people then forgot to, to look at the book or, or look at the letter and see how it was actually structured and how it flowed. And and DA allowed me to, discuss now. analysis allowed me to kind of take a fresh look.
1: And Jesus' priesthood and creation are linked deeply in Hebrews, which seems to be part of the point the author's making. He didn't enter the copy that tabernacles Holy of Holies, but into heaven itself. His priesthood is for the sake of the cosmos, for creation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that starts at the very beginning.
1: Yes, let's go back to that beginning. In your book, you make an intriguing observation. The cluster of creation references outnumber high priestly references in Hebrews chapters 1 through 4. Tell us about the creation references in the exordium, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and what they tell us about the sun.
2: Okay, thanks. So the first thing that struck me was that the audience is clearly expected to recognize Jesus from the description in 1-2 as the heir through whom God created. He's not even named until chapter 2. Um, now that told me that for the early Christians, this idea of the Son as the agent of creation was kind of a central tenet in their understanding of who the Son was. Because this signaled to me that the agent creation was such a a known designation for Jesus, it prompted me to examine how central the designation might be for the exordium. And as a result of that investigation, I think um, this observation then has an impact on how we see the son as saviour. When we look at the exordium in the light of that initial designation, designation, uh, we see that the salvific activity is linked very closely to the primordial role uh, so that the sun is specifically the incarnate creator who saves. So the first thing I draw attention to, um, starting with the exordium and then we'll see how it kind of influences the reading of the rest of the creation references, is the fact that the exordium tells a story and it tells it in a specific way. So this heir and agent of creation through whom God speaks has offered sacrifice and purification and is now seated at the right of God's majesty. When the son saves, he therefore does so as the one intricately involved in the creation of the world from the very beginning. So my chosen method, as I've just said, was discourse analysis, and I mentioned linearization. So according to discourse analysis theory, the events in the exordium would necessarily have been presented in a certain way so as to have a given effect on the air dressy. And so I set out to investigate that further. And a sequential reading of the exordium revealed that uh, God speaking through the sun, qua the air through whom he created specifically, um, was to be the most reportable event in the exordium. So the phrase um, reportable event kind of refers to not the thing that is most important, but the, th- the kind of linchpin upon which other things hang, right? So unless you get this bit, you don't really understand what comes next properly. So this phrase through whom he made the eons extended the description of the one through whom God spoke, following on from the description of him as heir to qualify him more specifically and thus we the sun's close relationship to God still further, but specifically in relation to creative activity. So firstly, I established the importance of that description, and then I went on to look at how it in some way seemed to govern what came next. Whilst the description of the sun as the radiance of God's glory and impress of his substance is often taken by scholars with his now being seated at the right hand of God's majesty, it actually seemed to me that the description of the sun as the radiance of God's glory and impress of his substance was in some way intended to extend that description of the sun as creator explaining how he was able to maybe be the agent of creation. And the reason I think that is because the direct impact of the creation reference actually stretches into verse three, uh, where we get the statement about the sun upholding all things. Uh, So that meant that the reflection description was kind of subordinated to the sun's role in creation, both originally and at present, and encapsulated within it. And it's only following the extended description of the son that the passage then goes on to mention how the son has made sacrifice for sin and sat at the right hand of God's glory. Now, returning to what the exordium tells us about the son, I think it's significant that the son in his close relationship to God, um, it's only that kind of relationship that can then result in uh, the salvific activity, if that makes sense. It seems to be that one leads into the other. Um, now at that point, I'd like to suggest that the exordium kind of has a, a very strong incarnational theology that's overlooked a little bit. Um, if we have again a look at the linearization, uh, we see that there's a spatial contrast in the depictions of the sun there, with the earthly depiction of the sun's sacrifice, uh, kind of in verse three, being sort of surrounded by these heavenly depictions. So we get this reference to being uh, having made sacrifice in verse three, and then which is followed on from what we've just been talking about. And then immediately we read again of his having been made higher than the angels and inherited in verse 4, which takes us back up to heaven. Now, of course, Israelite sacrifice, it's not complete with the immolation. I'm not suggesting that. And I I go at length in the book to to defend my theory. Um, But in Hebrews, um, that act of immolation is necessary for the blood to be taken behind the veil in 1020. So from the point of view of the epistle, that sacrificial reference had in some way, I think, to encompass the sun's becoming man. So it seems to me that we had a depiction of the incarnation. But whereas we're used to seeing it from an earthly perspective, this was from a heavenly perspective. Um, and that was the first time I encountered a sort of descent, ascent motif in the epistle. But I was to find that it repeated in some way wherever I found the creation reference. So thus the exordium tells us that the sun is specifically the heavenly sun who's become human. And has an incarnational theology that then sets the stage for the rest of the epistle. So, the next creation reference, if we take a look at that, um, that comes in 110 to 12, and it's a quotation from Psalm 102 that the Lord founded the world at the beginning and the heavens, the work of his hands. Now, interestingly, it's the sixth in a series of seven citations, and the citation in 110 to 12 is again revealed to be closely linked to the salvific activity of the sun when the final citation in the sequence was understood in relation to it now it's quite complicated in the book I basically argue that the Katina that series of citations uh, presents the events of the exordium in a kind of reverse order but then instead of having a reference back to the sun near the end we get a reference to the angels ministering um, to those who are to achieve salvation in verse 14 uh, and indeed uh, we do have a reference to his having become human again uh, and resisted sin in verse 1-9 so again there's this kind of a certain if it's related somewhere to salvation The descent-ascent motif uh, becomes more obvious, actually, I think, when we consider that passage then connects into uh, chapter two. We get some references to angels at the beginning of chapter two. And of course, in the original manuscript, we didn't have these chapter divisions. And specifically, we get this reference to Jesus having been been made lower than the angels in order to lead humanity heavenward. Again, there's this kind of descent-ascent motif. There's this idea of creation being very much linked to Christ's salvific activity there has to be some connection there. In verse 3, uh, we have, I argue in the book, an equation of the Christ uh, of Christ and God um, in the context of God's creative activity. And in verses 3 to 4, there's a reference back to... The, uh, sorry, there's a reference to being faithful in the house, uh, which should be understood in conjunction with a reference back to verse 1, uh, where it talks about the heavenly call of humanity and urges them to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, uh so again, as you were saying, you know, this link uh to the, the priestly activity um is now being drawn in specifically to a creation reference too. Uh this I consider a, a, again uh Christ's work is uh on earth it is being di- directly linked to his drawing humanity heavenward. Uh so there is again a reference to the descent of the sun and his returning heavenward with humanity, especially if we take it as following on from chapter two. And then in chapter four, it's a little bit more complicated. But at the start, in verses three to four, we have this reference to entering God's rest, uh, which is described in terms of uh, Genesis two two. Uh, the word uses sabbatismos, which obviously is related to Sabbath. Um, I look at the d- different possibilities of you know ways we can understand that word in the book, so I, I won't go into too much detail. Um, But there's this idea that God rested from creation on the seventh day, and there's a warning not to sin unless we we fail to enter that rest ourselves. Um, Now, in the wider context of the chapter, we see that the exhortation not to fall into disobedience and lose that same rest is on the basis of the son of God, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, having been tempted as we are. So again, he's been tempted, so he's obviously descended, and then he's gone back into heaven, and he's taken humanity with him. So again, it's that kind of thing we saw in chapter two, and it's just being repeated in a slightly different way. Uh, So again, descent ascent motif, it's connected to creation, it's connected to salvation. Um, And I think the exordium then effectively establishes this pattern for the other creation references that I examined that reveals the sun specifically to be the celestial saviour sun, who's been made incarnate and then returns to heaven, taking humanity with him.
1: You also deal with Hebrews' use of Psalm 8. Would you explain how that citation functions in Hebrews?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, it's quoted in chapter 2. It's 2, 5 to 9 that we we get this reference. Um, In his praises, the psalmist uh, pays particular attention to the position that God has given humanity and it's uh, to this that the author of Hebrews then draws attention in uh, 2, 6 to 8. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son sort of man that you visit him? Um, but then he kind of repeats the response of the psalm uh, that uh, God has made him a little lower than the angels before crowning them with glory and honor and putting everything under their feet. But then goes on to say, well, actually, we don't really see that in our daily life, do we? Um, you know, things are all a bit of a mess. Uh, but we do see Jesus. um who has been made for a little while uh, lower than the angels, and now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death on a part of all people. So again, you know what I'm going to say, I'm going to say there's a reference to the incarnation and there's a reference to salvation. Um, now, to understand how the psalm itself is working though, it's a bit more detailed. It's actually very interesting. Uh, firstly, I think we need to understand the psalm itself. So in the psalm, on the surface, humanity seems uh, insignificant. Uh, But God pays us heed and reflecting on Genesis 1.26, where God makes humankind in his own image and places them in control over all the beasts of creation. The psalm continues, you diminished him a a little, I'm sorry, maybe diminished him a little in in comparison with the angels, probably the best way of doing that. Uh, With glory and honour you crowned him and you set him over the work of your hands, you subjected all things under his feet, sheep and cattle altogether." And further, the beasts of the plain, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all the things that pass uh, through the powers of the sea. I'm using nets here.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, protein-plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals... slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: And that could be seen as an extension of his wonderment at God's care for humankind. How great is God to place the only man over his wondrous creation? But it could also be that the psalmist might be answering his own question. Uh, God pays attention to humankind because he's placed it over all creation. The role of humanity given at the creation is thus the point to which he's drawing attention. Uh, the Hebrew kind of ma- me'lohim Elohim Uh, may mean a little less than a god or a little less than heavenly beings. Um, But the Septuagint, which Hebrews is referencing, uh, specifically translates it um, as a little less uh, than the angels. Uh, And the the term used, Rahus could uh, actually have a temporal sense as well, which I'll get to in a minute because it becomes quite significant. Um, So in the, the Septuagint psalm, it seems to be indicative of humanity's slightly lower station. But in Hebrews, the angels were previously described as God's messengers, like the prophets in two two that portrayed in chapter one as being hierarchically lower than the sun. But in two five to nine, we then get them depicted as above him in a contrast to their previous roles. Nevertheless, the Son's subjection only lasts by a little for a little time uh, or a little while, and that term brechu in the psalm is interpreted in a temporal sense, and we see. Um, Uh, that instead of humanity having had everything under its feet since the beginning, it's Jesus who sees all things under his feet, I said a bit earlier. Now that's actually a repetition of a phrase from 113 where we get a quotation of Psalm 110, which makes the point that God never said to the angels the words of the psalm that he would put the enemies under their feet. So what Hebrews does is it brings together Psalm 110 and 108 through a process we call Gezerah Shavah, Uh, which is where you get one passage connected to another using just a single word so that you interpret them together. It's it's quite a well-known technique. We see it in a lot of places in scripture. Uh, Here it's centered on the word feet uh, to stress the ongoing process of the subjection of everything to the sun. In Psalm 8, humanity has had everything under its feet from the beginning, but Hebrews reinterprets that psalm in terms of the sun's dominion by combining the two. Now, bear with me. This is probably sounding very complicated at the moment. (laughs) Hebrews' linking of Psalm 8 with 110 and the connection of 2, 5 to 9 with the preceding co-text of chapter 1 causes us to question exactly how the epistle is employing Psalm 8. Rather than any reference to humanity's original dominion over creation, some people say it would appear that Hebrews does not share the psalm's kind of once-and-for-all idea that humanity has governance over creation. Rather, they would say that the psalm is kind of seem to refer prophetically to the dominion of the son following his exaltation. So furthermore, it would seem that in the, in the view of the psalm, um, it's kind of an entirely positive description of humanity when it comes to the cre- creation of it, um, saying it's been kind of glory and honor. Um, but in Hebrews, of course, that position we say was not currently experienced by humanity. And so the psalm is then taken to having referred kind of prophetically to the Son. Now, a closer look at the vocabulary may indeed suggest that according to Hebrews, creation was not ever subjected to humanity. We have a phrase kind of not yet in verse eight. That might suggest that the world was never subjected to humanity in the first place. And it could be argued in some way, Hebrews sees the Christ event as the outworking of the original promise in the psalm. It promises that everything is under submission to humanity, but that actually only happens under Christ. So that raises the question of whether Hebrews understands the psalm purely Christologically. Um, And it would appear that the author of Hebrews offers a Christological midrash of uh, Psalm 8. Midrash takes a text and explains its meaning in order to support a theological proposition. Here, you could argue that it's supporting my theory of a descent motif that I've already recognized in Hebrews. However, it may be that an anthropological reading of Psalm uh, um, 8a uh, and the Christological reading of uh, 8, 9 to 10 of the Psalm are actually compatible. And it seems to me that in verses eight to nine, we move from a focus on humanity, denoted by the two separate phrases in the Psalm quotation, uh, man and son of man in verse six and him in verse eight to Jesus. Uh, there is a cohesive tie. Um, so what we say is like a connection uh, and a contrast on the verbs of seeing. But, we, uh, but now we do not see, but we do see Jesus. Um, Now, Hebrews could be viewed as moving from our not yet seeing humanity as having everything subjected to it through to Christ, through whom everything will eventually be subjected and whose reign has already begun. That suggests that the psalm is seen itself to reference humanity, but that it's not the lived experience. And so we must see how it might otherwise be understood typologically. Such observations prompt me to conclude that Hebrews begins with the anthropological reading of the psalm, but it ends on a Christological note. Now, Le Cher, he kind of uh, notes that the psalmist ignores the introduction of sin into the world. Hebrews, by contrast, says the son makes atonement for sin and leads all people to glory in verse 10, perhaps resolving a conflict in the author's mind between what he sees as reality and what scripture says. And that is, it moves from the original situation through the lack of everything being subjected to humanity in the current era to the promise that everything once will, uh, will be again under its control, this time under Christ's leadership as the head of humanity.
1: Psalm 8 is really a good lead-in for my next question. In terms of Christology, you propose there may be a second Adam theology underpinning Hebrews chapter 2. Would you unfold this idea for us?
2: You're right. I think it flows on. Um, Basically, uh, there's a link, I think, in chapter two, uh, because there's a special focus on the humanity of Jesus in that chapter uh, and on his becoming human. And indeed, you can argue that there's kind of a second Adam theology, uh, which would support this idea that Christ is kind of the headship of humanity and that's how creation is then subjected. So the focus on the humanity of Jesus actually continues in verses 10 to 18 where we have a chain of vocabulary pertaining to kinship used in relation to his becoming human. The humanity of Jesus continues in verses 10 to 18, where we have a chain of vocabulary pertaining to kinship used in relation to his becoming human. So we find humanity called sons when they're brought into glory by the son. For instance, so you've got that kind of uh, note. uh, And I'm I'm sticking with the masculine there rather than saying children because it's maybe a bit easier to to see the link um, in the original Greek. Uh, crucially, then, in verse 11, uh, people are then said to have the same origin as Christ, which is a reference to his own humanity. Uh, and so we call brethren. I don't think there's any suggestion in Hebrews that uh, humanity is heavenly and originates with the heavenly sun. That wouldn't make any sense. Uh, so this is definitely a, a reference to his being made man. And that indicates that there's a connection between humanity and the son by virtue of his earthly birth. And that allows him to draw people to heavenward. And that becomes particularly important when we read in verses 14 to 15, that since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise uh, shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who had the power over death, that is the devil, and free those um, uh, all whose whose lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. And that's verses uh, 14 to 15. Now that's seen as a reference I would say to Genesis 3 to be seen as a reference to Genesis 3 and the temptation of Eve and the consuming of the fruit by Adam that leads to death. So we have this idea of a common origin and then we have a reference to how the Son is taken flesh specifically to reverse that curse that was placed on humanity in Eden. Uh, Hebrews is possibly similar to 1 Corinthians maybe for uh, as all men die in Adam so all will be made alive in Christ. Only here it's not really the resurrection at stake but rather it's ascent into heaven. So it's a kind of Almost Pauline theology. Now, in the Pauline text, everyone is seen as being kind of incorporated into the historical Adam, <clears throat> the first human. And so they share in his condemnation to death and through incorporation to Christ, they can still have life. And similarly, we might say that Hebrews sees all humanity as being encompassed in Christ's death, but this time they can ascend to heaven. And so you can maybe argue that there's a kind of second Adam theology going on, too. Now, it's a bit controversial. Uh, Again, humans are called brethren in verse 12, and in verse 13, they are described even more dearly as the children of God, um, that he's kind of given to the Son. Now, that links linguistically back to verse 16, where offspring are also mentioned, and we learn that God is concerned with the descendants of Abraham, uh, and the Christ event is then summarized in verse 17 to 18, where the Son is said to have been made like his brethren in every respect. now that could suggest that the descent from one person is actually descent from Abraham rather than Adam. And some scholars have argued that. Um, However, I think we can counter that by taking a a little bit of a closer look at 10, uh, verse 10. Uh, That uh, reveals that uh, there's this ultimate goal of becoming human. And it's to return to heaven and to allow humanity, specifically those who are faithful to the Son, uh, to uh, enter therein, uh, for it's fitting uh, for him, for the sake of whom everything is, and through whom is everything, in leading many sons and children to glory, uh, to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, this term glory connects back to, well, it connects both to the mention of humanity's original crowning with glory in 2.7, and the fact that the son has been now crowned with glory and honour in verse 9. So humanity is thereby kind of depicted uh, as achieving that original glory uh, that it was promised uh, through, it, through the sacrifice and the exaltation of the Son. And that, I think, lends a bit of credence to this theory that we do have Christ as a kind of second Adam. Uh, that uh, term we actually find, um, ex enos, is um, possibly used specifically of descent from Adam in Acts 17.26 as well, which might suggest that it's formulaic and would have been kind of naturally understood as meaning descent from Adam uh, rather than Abraham. So I I think that's kind of where I'm sort of headed at the moment.
1: All right, time for the bonus question. Who wrote the book of
2: Hebrews? Oh, gosh, no, don't get me started. Please don't make me answer that one. I think we don't know. I I don't think it was Paul. Um, I I think the language is very different. Some of the vocabulary is, is kind of very highly elevated. Now, that's not to say Paul couldn't have used more elevated language pretty desired. I mean, we all speak and write in different registers doesn't necessarily mean anything in and of itself and um, there's a whole uh reference to Italy thing that scholars uh talk about you know where is he writing to or from or I think the jury's out I don't think we can give a definite author I mean people have you know I even read one commentary that suggested it was a woman but when he uses kind of masculine Forms of, you know, grammatical forms. I'm not sure how you came to that conclusion. But uh, no, I, I just think generally the, the jury's out. I don't want to commit myself to an answer on that one.
1: <laughs> I agree that the language is different from that of Paul's. But when I hear you talk about ascent and descent and creation theology, I go immediately to the Gospel of John. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting that John wrote the book of Hebrews, but it certainly seems someone in his circle and with the particular theological angle of the Gospel of John.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. that there, There's a, another thing I've looked at more recently in a a, a publication. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention it by name. Um but uh, it's I've written a chapter on the connection possibly between Hebrews uh, theology and that of Philo and uh, Logos theology. And of course, Logos theology might be the kind of background to John as well. So it may well be that there were just uh, certain themes circulating and they, they've been kind of picked up by the different writers as well. Uh, so a kind of school of thought more generally uh, rather than people who knew each other. So I think that's also an option. Yeah, I mean, I think if anyone finds the answer to that question, they, they've probably won the million-dollar question. <laughs> so.
1: so what's next for you in terms of projects?
2: Uh, sure. So I am looking at a project on – I'm a Hebrew Catholic, uh, so looking at the history of Hebrew Catholics. Uh, so I'm working on that at the moment uh, with an, uh, with another few scholars. Uh, I'm also looking to do another discourse analysis project on the, this time, the theme of children and offspring in the Septuagint book uh, Wisdom. So the Wisdom of Solomon, it's sometimes called. Uh, So looking at that, uh, I think I might do a similar kind of thing that I've done with Hebrews. So uh, there are lots of different references to offspring. Again, the vocabulary is not linked, uh, or it's not the same throughout the book. So I think perhaps it's being overlooked. And uh, that might be a another thing to explore. You know, is this a thing that's been overlooked because the vocabulary is not shared again? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's probably my next big project that I'm hoping to work on soon.
1: Angela, it's been a delight hearing about your work on Hebrews, creation, in Christ. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
1: Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.